Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to a very special Kalon S Rugby podcast. This season is all about moving the conversation and tonight, with the help of an esteemed panel, we will look ahead to the 10th season of the EPCR era of European Club Rugby by looking back on a decade filled with question marks. Like any politician, the EPCR caused havoc upon entering the scene. They promised the sun, the moon, the stars and basically have delivered zilch. Was this fable competition murdered as opposed to revived? And is there anything we can do to stem the tide? That is what we're going to be discussing tonight. Joining me to discuss the topic is an excellent five-man panel. We have returnees from our Rugby World Cup coverage in the form of Tom Coleman, Ed Price and Hugh Griffin. So firstly, welcome back onto the podcast, fellas. Good to be back. Cheers, mate. Good to have you on. And we also have two debutants on these airwaves, but if you listen to the Red Hand, Harper and Rugby or the Red Army podcast, you'll be familiar with the dulcet tones of Ian Frizzell and Eric Fitzgerald. So welcome to the show, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Caelan. Thanks, Caelan. I don't think anyone's ever described my membership of a panel as being esteemed before, but sure, first time for everything. First time for everything, indeed. And for those at home, before we kick off proceedings, I'd like to remind our YouTube viewers that you can listen to us on the go wherever you get your podcasts, and vice versa for our audio listeners. If you want to get a visual representation, of our Zoom-mediated fighting, or at least I hope it doesn't come to blows. Anyways, before we start to trash things out, I want to start nice nice and cosy on this Sunday evening. So, starting with yourself, Tom, um, we'll keep it short and sweet for this one. What does European Club Rugby mean to you, and, and what comes to mind when, when you think about it? Well, I suppose, given my age, uh, maybe just the, the oldest here, apart from Ian, <laughs> I'd say that uh, it sort of coincided with much of my adult life, so I've been in a position where, you know, since the early days of European Cup rugby, I've I've travelled all over Europe, um, following Leinster, um, and I suppose the mystique and the and the the beauty of it was, you know, going to places like King's Home and standing in the shed when there was full crowd at Gloucester, or or going to places like Carrant and just seeing the French rugby gone and 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 seeing all that in person. And and then obviously in between that you're getting massive results, you know, like maybe down in Bordeaux against Clermont in 
in 2012 or, or, or famously down in, down in Toulouse uh, in 2006. Uh, so seeing the ups and, downside, ups and downs of it, um, but it's always been enjoyable because from a personal point of view, there's just a few of us have been going away to these games for years and, you know, you know, life with work and family and everything is full on. And, you know, from my point of view, going away on a weekend like that, European rugby and just with your friends and the road trip and the dinners and the, and, and the few points and, and, and get, getting to see and meet supporters from all over uh, Europe, as I said, whether it be Gloucester or, or Exeter or, you know, some of the big, big English grounds on, on a full night and a Friday night, you know, it's, it's, it's great. Or, or as I said, some of the places down in France, uh, I just think it's been fantastic. Some of my best memories over the last 25, 30 years have been rugby away trips. Uh, like I drove one time, we flew into Milan because we had no option and did a three-day road, three road trip down to Toulon. And, you know, just the laughs and the crack. So, you know, if you're asking me what memories are, the easiest thing is to rhyme off a few wins. You know, we've we've been lucky enough to win four. But but really, when I look beyond that, it's it's just more the memories of, of, of visiting these places and meeting supporters from others and just having the crack and singing with French in a, in a pub at two o'clock in the morning uh, and trying to get pigeon English and pig, pigeon Irish and pigeon French. And, you know, that's what it's about to me. That's as a, as a, as a rugby fan and as a, as a rugby supporter, the wins are the icing on the cake, but it's, it's the journey there. And it's, it's been fantastic since I've started going like, you know, over 25 years. Great way to start things off as well. Tom, Ian, or sorry, Ed, I'll come to you first actually, because I'd like to get the, the non-Irish perspective on these things. I've yourself and Hugh on for, for that this evening. European club rugby, Gloucester, not Champions Cup winners, but Challenge Cup winners in, in years gone by. What What's it all mean to you? Yeah, so echoing Tom's um, comments there. Um, so I started going with my dad originally, and we we got to go to places like Madrid uh, in the early days of the Challenge Cup, as it was. Um, and um, yeah, probably a little bit different to Leinster. Um, we, got, we got some slightly more exotic uh, climbs like... Uh, some places in Italy that you wouldn't normally go to watch rugby and uh, and Madrid and a few other places. And the guys, there's a few lads going over to Georgia in a couple of weeks' time, or I'd say a week's time. Um, yeah, it is really that. I mean, the, the, the weekends away in Europe, the rugby gets in the way, if anything, um, <laughs> particularly if you're a Gloucester fan, because we don't win many away games. So, um, but yeah, it's been it's been a fantastic uh, sort of period of, of my life, sort of echoing Tom again. You know, you, you go to these wonderful places that you probably wouldn't do if it wasn't for rugby, um, you discover some places like La Rochelle, you know, uh, I know it's a bit of a tourist destination, but most people go somewhere a little bit more exotic and, um, and kind of Bordeaux last year was fantastic. Um, personal highlight, I think for me probably was that early trip away to Madrid, 15 year old lad in Madrid for the first time with my dad, you know, everything's, everything's, everything's uh, open and alive at 12 o'clock at night. And you're like, what on earth is this about? And it's 20 degrees in November. Um, can't beat it. Can't beat it at all. So, yeah, that's kind of my memories, really, of, of European rugby. So as we say here in Ireland, it's far from that kind of weather you're you're reared in, but it's good to enjoy it as well. Ian, no more than the two lads, you you would have, um, have followed Ulster through, through the European Cup era, Ulster winners in 1999, of course. What's what's European club rugby mean to you? Uh, well, obviously, the memories of 1999 are, are, are still there and will always be there. Um, uh, and that was a, a wonderful period for for uh, Irish rugby and Ulster rugby. Um, 
but for me, probably the the period around the middle noughties to the mid teens was was the best for for me. Um, I was part of a a group of people who met <laughs> via a chat room, uh, and uh, we were quite a quite quite a large group of people, and and we had. Uh, we had some lovely meetups over the over the years at European Games, and culminating in I think four or maybe five uh, finals that we all attended, and, and we were a, 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 just a, a, an eclectic mix of supporters from from different clubs. Some who uh, who would never make a European final, some who um, did make and, and and fell at the wayside, and. And obviously, a good few Leinster guys who we were able to celebrate with when they did win. Uh, so for me, that period, um, absolutely enjoyed it. Did most of the travelling alone, but uh, met some fantastic people uh, through that. And as Tom said, uh, sometimes the rugby maybe wasn't uh, the most important thing. Great bit of perspective to start things off between yourself, Ian, and Tom as well. Mm-hmm. Hugh, you're a you're a Scarlet's supporting ilk. No European accolades to to read out, but that doesn't mean the competition doesn't hold the same aura. What what have you made? But what comes to mind when you think of European rugby? I think for the Welsh, European rugby is all about a chance to to start afresh and to reset. You know, with the exception of the Ospreys, most of us have more luck in Europe than we do in the league. And it's a chance that, yes, we may not be right at the top most years, although some some years we are. We might get drawn in the pool with the English champions or the French champions, and you know what? We might just give them a bloody nose. And then to, to borrow a soccer parlance, we might go on a cup run and find ourselves in a quarterfinal, in a semifinal, and we pack out our stadiums for those days. And it's just we'll talk about it for, for years on, yes, Occasionally, you might find yourself playing Leinster at a neutral venue and uh, things go against you. Uh, but yeah, obviously, Cardiff have had the success at the Challenge Cup level. And it's just a chance for us to put our our worries to, to one side and just, like I said, start afresh and really just enjoy the the variety of rugby. And that's great to hear as well. And obviously, Scarlet's... Um, as you've said, had that neutral venue game against Leinster in 2018. They famously knocked Munster out when they were defending champions in 06. And of course, or 07, apologies. But um, those those great memories are there as well. Eric, you have followed Munster through thick and thin of European rugby in, in years gone by. I mean, asking a Munster fan, what does European rugby mean to them? You get the same cliches about Holy Grail and all that. But what does it mean to you? I suppose what it means for me more than anything, Kaylon, is that European rugby was my introduction to Munster rugby and it was my introduction to Munster as a whole. Um, some switch flicked in my brain in 2002 and for a young fella who I was, what, 14 at the time, um, had no interest in sport up to that point. Um, suddenly an interest in sport was kindled and my interest in rugby kicked off because the first Munster match that I ever watched on television with my dad was the miracle match um where we beat Gloucester 33-6 in um in Thoman Park to go on like to like qualify in highly improbable circumstances uh for the quarterfinals we went over to Welford Road then and beat Leicester 
Um, and but for our Freddie Michelak wonder try, um, we lost out uh, in the semi final against Toulouse. Um, but I suppose for me, subsequently, like you know, it has always been, you know, they they use like EPCR use the slogan the one to win, uh, nowadays. But like that has always been the case for Munster with the the Heineken Cup, um. And it'll always be the Heineken Cup to me, no matter what sponsors or lack of sponsors come in. And like, even with this Investec Champions Cup, you know, myself and my parents are still talking about going to the Heineken Cup match on Saturday. Like, you know, it's just one of those, it's just one of those things that will always stick. But I suppose like, you know, I've been lucky enough to be there in 2006 and 2008, um, both years when, um, when we won the tournament outright. Uh, 2006 was the, I think the two weeks before my leave and start started. Um, so I remember being enormously hungover after my school breakup day, um, heading over on the ferry uh, to Cardiff for the 2006 final. Um, but similar, I think, to what, um, what Ed and Tom and Ian have alluded to, for me, it's kind of like just the broader rugby family that you get to meet. Um, like I've had great away days in like in the shed in Gloucester, which I think is one of the best venues in England to to go to an away game. Um, Welford Road in Leicester is a phenomenal away venue and like even better fans there as well. You know, I've had the pleasure of going to places like, you know, like Swansea, like Toulouse is one of the all time great away games as well um, in the Ernst Ballon. Um, I always say with the French, the French is that they'll kick the shit out of you on the pitch and then they'll kill you with kindness off the pitch. So, um, the French away trips are always great. Um, and just, you know, I think even to me, it's just more so about like the actual quality of games itself that are played in it. Like for me, a very common fixture of like a European weekend is you're not just looking forward to your own province, your own team's game or your own province's game. You know, you'll sit down and you'll try and watch as many of the games that are on that weekend as possible and get an idea of who's playing what way, you know, kind of you get invested in some of the narratives that um that build up around it. Like, you know, I remember the run the Ospreys went on in the group stages um last year and, you know, watching them win last minute over in Welford Road. And then just even some of the finals, like some of the standalone finals have been incredible games. Like I, I I've been to two neutral finals, um, both of them in Dublin in 2013 and 2023, both of which were like some of the best games of of club rugby I've ever seen. Like you know, I I I can see Tom shaking his head there over twenty twenty three, but I think from a neutral perspective, um, like neutral. I genuinely think I genuinely think it was one of the greatest games of club rugby ever played in terms of just how back and forth it was and the standard of rugby that was played. Like, were you, game... were, were you actually neutral when Armitage <laughs> was, was playing in two thousand thirteen? I don't think anyone could be neutral when Dell and Armitage was considered. But uh, I was definitely, I definitely, oh, I'm not kidding anyone. I wasn't neutral that day. I was up for Claremont because Claremont to me were always like the French monster in terms of how close they'd come in the past. Um, and also much like Munster back in the ten back in the tens are now doing absolutely crap. So but to summarize sorry, to come back to your initial question and to stop going off on a tangent, the reason why the European Cup means so much to me in rugby is because it is the earliest rugby memory that I have. And it is like it was the taste that got me hooked. And since then it has always been the standout, the pinnacle competition for me. And and that's a great point to to leave it off, and it's one that I agree with. Like my first, the the first season that I remember start following Munster is oh seven oh eight. I remember we played the Scarlets in in back to back 
maybe not back to back. We had them in the pool. We had that famous win over Wasps where you couldn't make out who the players were. It was so muddy. And then Dennis Leamy scores a try with five minutes to go, win over getting out of the pool. And and games like that are just that they're they forge your rugby upbringing, I think. You know, memories like that, games like that. And it is what we were brought up on. And thankfully, I think we can all agree. Sorry, Tom, if, if this is if this against you, but the last European game we'd have all watched was an absolute classic as well. And that's what we're hoping that we get more of as opposed to, you know, the 50-point Tonkins that we've seen in, in recent seasons. Um, I want to go go back to the start. As the as Ian and Tom mentioned, and I'll come to you guys for this, like European rugby, it was once seen as the pinnacle of the sport. And I, I want to say this isn't Irish bias, I don't think, but like from when it started to the early 2010s, it was talked about alongside the Champions League as being this brilliant format, this brilliant competition that was uber competitive. Ian, I'll start with yourself. Like, following the competition as it rose to prominence, like, do you think the recent installments have lost the mystique that it once had, for instance? Ian, you're on mute there. Sorry. (laughs) I think like anything, um, you, you know, you get used to something. Um, it doesn't matter how good a thing is. Um, it does tend to lose mystique a wee bit uh, over a period of time. And yes, the early the early um, uh, European Cup um, did have a bit of mystique because we were getting to see teams that we'd only heard of. Some of them we hadn't even heard of um, uh, coming along. So yeah, that uh, and, and you know it it was a spectator. Uh, led thing I think at the start because uh, you know spectators drove the the, the competition onwards uh, sort of before the blanket uh, TV coverage came along uh, and uh, I mean if you look at that sort of um, that, that period in the in the noughties and early teens where Sky coverage took it I think to a different level uh, and uh you know that that to me was was a was a factor in getting uh, people off their bums in front of the TV, so to speak, and and uh, getting them out and going to the games um, because of that. So uh, you know, there's a there's a uniqueness in some great games, uh, and and teams are putting uh, their best sides out um, to to compete in it. Uh, I think we've lost a bit of that over the last few years. And that's a very fair point as well. And Tom, to kind of lean on a point that Ian made there, like the fans were a big part of, of the growth as well, because when European rugby started, like the AIL was getting bigger attendances than, than mm. provincial games. And then come the mid two thousands, you were getting 20,000 or so at, at these games for, for the provinces. Like, for for you following it as fan and watching it, what was that growth like, and and how does it compare to now, in your opinion? Well, look, as um, you know, when I, in in the nineties, you know, anyone that's looked at say Irish rugby, how how awful we were as a nation of rugby, we were perennial wooden spoonists. You know, I think we won six or seven games in total in the nineties in the Five Nations. So the Heineken Cup and sort of the the. the you know, going back to Ulster's win and then on from that, Munster getting to the 2000 final against Northampton. It, it, there were definitely two igniting factors for rugby in Ireland to be, you know, 
Hugh used the word reset for, for Welsh rugby without enduring a season. But there's no question European rugby was a reset for Irish rugby full stop. And it sort of kick-started what you see now. I don't think if the Heineken Cup had to come along and its guys, um, the growth from, say, 95 to 96, first one, to 2000, and when, when, when Ulster and, 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 and Munster started to make inroads, I don't think you would see Irish rugby today. I think Irish rugby's success in the last 20-odd years, relative to the previous 100, is down to Heineken Cup rugby. That's why it holds probably a special place for for uh, in, in, in Irish you know, rugby minds why it is. You know, as for the format itself, you know, I think the inaugural tournament had like 12 teams, but after that, it was sort of unchanged for for 23 or 24 years, you know, to be floating between 20, 20, 20 and 24 teams. Uh, there was the one year where the English boycotted it in 99. Um, and and even Swansea and Cardiff, I think, boycotted that year. We had a row with the WRU. I'm really glad that's really got sorted out since... Uh, I'm really glad that's got sorted out. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and it's, you know, the question, you know, has it changed? It probably has. They love, they love a punch down, the Leinster fans. <laughs> well, yes, well, in, fair, man. in fairness, too, in the first first five minutes, you did get a dig in at Leinster and Ospreys in the first, so, you know, I think the gloves were off then. <laughs> but uh, uh, we, yeah, it just, I think the COVID really didn't help, you know, with the format. So I, I think uh, Ian put it, sort of perfectly, you know, we don't like change. And I think, listen to the lads speaking and yourself, Caelan, it's all about, mainly about the memories that you made and those journeys over the last, you know, whatever length of time we've been doing it. And sometimes for that reason alone, we don't want the apple cart upset. You know, don't change it too much because we like going to these trips to King's Home or we like going to to Parky Scarlet's or wherever we're going to end up going. And... um you know, maybe maybe you know, changes always uh, can be can be a bad thing, especially if it's uh, if it's something that, you're, that you don't want changed. But um, yeah, it's COVID obviously didn't help, and the format sort of been changed a lot. And the mistake, some of it has gone a little bit because there's some ga- some games. Um, you, you feel there's more teams of less interest in it now. You know, it's no coincidence if you look at the last sort of seven or eight years. A lot of the same teams are getting to the final in the last four. You always get the odd one thrown in like Exeter. But generally, it's the same teams, so I don't think that's good for the tournament. All right, um, um, because before, and, and, and you summed it up. There's, there's there's times when teams that wouldn't see themselves as fancy and winning it would draw a big team and and put them, give them a bloody nose. Uh, like I remember being over, you know, not that we were that great back then, but I remember losing in Kings home back, and I think it was oh five or oh six, um, the year we won, uh, the year we got to the semi final. So, you know, though those results are tending not to happen as much anymore. Um, so there, 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 there is a bit of a gap between, you know, a certain number of teams. So I think for the the EPCR to keep that format, uh, they need to really look at uh, sort of embracing all of the teams um, in a format that would, would suit, give give teams a longer period. You know, the, the days of two pool games, I know COVID was a factor, doesn't help. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing they have to address in the next couple of years is, is sort of to, to embrace the, the the wider rugby club community around Europe, where where the the, the format is set up that it it gives all teams a chance to, to be in it right to the end, right to the end of the pool stages, let's say, rather than get into a situation where we tend to know what the knockouts are after a couple of games. Um, I think that's the biggest challenge they have. Yeah, and and as you said, there's probably an appetite to change now, whereas when it happened there was definitely a split as to whether they should or shouldn't change. And I remember RTE had a, I think they basically 
kind of stopped doing pre-match coverage of games around the time the talks were happening because it was the story, the fact that we're going to see this this change. And it came in 2014. Eric, I'll start with you on this because you, you might have a better memory than, than say, myself. Um, but the, the cat thrown among the pigeons with the English and French clubs, they were, they were threatening to walk away, essentially. For those who need reminding, like, can you take us through your memory and your opinion of the early talks of the EPCR coming on board and as well as some of the promises that never came to because that's that was a huge part of their selling point as well. Yeah, so a large um a large reason for why the English and French um uh bodies, so the LM the Ligue Nationale de Rugby in um France and Premier Rugby Limited in England. A big reason why um, they felt that the ERC was no longer fit for purpose was because the ERC, which was set up under the auspices of the old Five Nations Committee, um, paid out a share of revenue based on participating union, not based on participating league. So while there were three constituent, there were ostensibly um, three constituent leagues making up um, the uh, ERC and making up the, the Champions Cup and you know, to a certain extent, the Challenge Cup, there was obviously participants from, you know, the, the top league in Italy and uh, and kind of teams from Romania and um, and Georgia and Spain. Um, ostensibly, what was happening was, although you had three leagues, um, you effectively had um, six shareholders in the six kind of national unions that were making up that league. So what was happening was that instead of getting um, a 33% share of the revenue, uh, the English League and the French League were, I hope my maths are right here, were getting roughly around a 16-17% share, share of the revenue. So there had been a couple of false starts, you know, like we alluded to the English teams withdrawing in 1999. There had definitely been like some sabre-rattling was happening around the time, um, uh, every time the, the agreement came up for renegotiation. But it was finally in 2012 um, that... The premier, the Premiership Rugby and uh, the LNR got really serious about kind of like serving notice to withdraw from, uh, from the ERC. Um, and they described they described the ERC as kind of not fit for purpose. Like if you wanted to be conspiratorial about it, I think there was a sentiment that you know, like an organisation whose CEO was an Irishman based in Dublin during a period of time in the competition when you know, like Munster and Leinster and um, Ulster had been. Um, had been quite successful and it was it was dominated a lot by kind of Irish teams. Um, there was certainly an element of that. There was also an element, um, this was particularly prevalent from Mark McCafferty, who was the head of Premier Rugby Limited at the time, um, that they could do a better job commercially with the competition um, uh, by taking it over. So in the inaugural, uh, and before we even get into that, the biggest catalyst, of course, was the signing of the BT Sports deal, uh, now TNT Sports as they are, um, by the Premiership Clubs. Because at the time when that deal was signed, they also sold the rights to their home European Cup games, which at the time they technically didn't have the rights to sell because that was already covered by the Sky Sports Agreement, with Sky being the sole broadcaster um, for the um, for the Champions Cup or the, the Heineken Cup, as it was known then. And that's what a lot of people will remember as the catalyst that kind of broke the back of the ERC and led to the introduction of the EPCR. Um, the EPCR kind of came in on this big wave of change of, we're going to make the tournament more commercially successful. 
And a big way they promised to make the tournament more commercially successful was they were going to have five title sponsors. It was going to be the European Rugby Champions Cup uh, with five title sponsors. They managed two at a push. Um, that that was a we're... stretch anyways. Like five title sponsors is a bit... It it, you know. it was a real like I mean to to boldly state that to be your ambition publicly felt a little bit to me like over promising and under delivering like they were they were effectively kind of you know they were giving themselves enough rope with which to be hung you know um because Heineken came on at a reduced like if you know the talks are to be believed at a reduced amount because they didn't have title sponsorship Turkish Airlines spent I think one or two seasons as one of these five title sponsors. And the rest never kind of really materialized until um Heineken ended up taking back on title sponsorship after a couple of years of um the EPCR. So, you know, they're very much like, you know, it I I will say here, like, I mean, there were definitely legitimate grievances on the part of LNR and PRL, the French and English bodies in terms of how the commercial revenue was divvied up. Um, but unfortunately, what subsequently transpired appeared to be a case of, well, you know, give us the reins and we'll do a much better job. That didn't really transpire in a lot of aspects in in reality. Now, I do actually believe that there is one particular area where the EPCR has done a better job than the ERC, and I'm, I'm happy to go into that later. Um, but I think overall the quality of the product has probably diminished under EPCR's watch. And a lot of that is down to um, some commercial bungling, uh, particularly around kind of like the Heineken deal. Um, There's also been like wild promises made about growing the game where since EPCR took over, only two finals have been held outside of the UK. Um, And um, also as well, there were, you know, there was just... There was a whole host of um. There was there, there and and of course then the TV deal and the transition to BT Sports, that 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 ended up I I would argue like not a commentary on the quality of BT's coverage, but I think just the move to BT overall ended up being more of a hindrance than a help to the competition. That's that's my view on it anyway. Like as I said, do think that the French and the English had some legitimate grievances around some of the terms of the ERC structure, but I think that once they they were like the dog chasing the car once they caught up kind of felt like they didn't know what to do with it in some cases. And it's a it's a good analogy, to be fair. Hugh, uh, a lot of what Eric said there was based on the commercial aspect, and there's no getting away that they they definitely overpromised and underdelivered. But the finals point is something I want to touch on because like Irish fans had to wait ten years to get a final. There hasn't been a final back in Cardiff. There was one in Murrayfield. Bill Bow got one. Apart from that, it's been England and France. Even at that, I think France only got, what, two finals in that period, um, if not one. It, it really feels like the fans have been let down. And, and just in that particular aspect, like if you if you want to grow the game commercially and in terms of just its, its, its reach, the fact that these countries that are big rugby nations, a big rugby nation like Wales not getting a final just feels, just feels wrong, doesn't it? Yes, I can kind of see it from the point of view that in terms of density of population, obviously England is the highest. And if you've got a city like London, that commercially is probably the most attractive. Um, 
Except that, see if you, you'd probably look at what is the most rugby mad demographic um, apart prior to the South Africans joining would be the South of France. So you would expect that you'd see more um, finals being held there. Obviously, the, you could argue that the only venue suitable for ho- hosting a final in France would be Stade de France, which is obviously in Paris, which is not in that region. It'll be interesting to see if in the future we ever see a finals in South Africa. I can imagine that that would go down extremely badly with some people, even though from a commercial point of view, somewhere like Cape Town would be a tap-in in terms of attendance and excitement that, that would bring, presuming the Stormers or one of the South African teams were participating. I think, is it now, I, I might be getting confused with the URC rules, is it uh, linked to who gets to the final these days, or is it just a straight selection? I'm getting shakes of the head around. Neutral, neutral venue, neutral venue, yeah. Neutral, neutral and neutrals there are one to use yeah, now. Well, ne- unless, unless it's Dublin. Um, but neutral venue, um, if a... you, uh, but they bid for it. It's a, it's a bidding process like they have for um, the Champions League and um, for like the Super Bowl. Same sort of principle. And we're not getting okay. it back now. We, we fumbled it last year by not having a, a fan zone. And apparently that has gone down really badly. Um, which is something like if we're going to talk about this, we should be introspective as well. Like the fact that there wasn't a fan zone for for Dublin, even though there was one 10 years ago, apparently didn't go down too well. And that, those things don't help your cause either. But anyways, that's that's just one. That's just us. We're not we're not the only ones who matter, as, as Eric pointed out. Yeah, you could also argue, you know, even if you did host it somewhere like Ireland or South France, is that really growing the game? You could argue that to grow the game, we should be holding it somewhere in like um, the USA or somewhere else around the world. But then again, you're at the risk of treading on, on toes of that not being a cool rugby area and the actual hardcore fans like you guys have alluded to being cut out. So, yeah, I can see why it is very difficult to please everyone. And I can see why a city like London might be seen as a, as a bit of a compromise from that point of view. And the Ed and Eric have, have reminded me here, it, it's in Spurs this year. That was pushed out due to the Qatar World Cup. It was supposed to be prior to this. Um, Marseille were supposed to be having it the COVID year, I believe. And then that also got pushed out as well. So there's so many different factors. Ian, you want to jump in there, do you? Yeah, I just want to say, you know, the, the, to me, the, the Henning Cup was all about the fans. And I, I appreciate the idea of growing the game, but growing the game at the expense of the enjoyment of the fans isn't really, uh, I, I don't think, what uh, we would want to see. Um, taking a European Cup final to to the USA, for example, uh, to, you know, that's not, that's not uh, for me, what the ethos of the, of, of the competition is about. Um, I can understand uh, the Bilbao, I can understand going to St. James's Park, I can understand things like that, um, but you still have to make it uh, accessible for the fans. I mean, if you've got, um, you know, Toulouse versus Leinster or Toulouse versus Leicester in, in the final, uh, throwing them all onto an airplane and taking them, uh, you know, beyond a lot of fans' means uh, in it, what I would be wanting to see. Yeah, and that's important as well, especially when there's talks of potentially moving a final to the Middle East. Like that's not something we want to see for a different reason as well. But on top of it, Eric, you want to jump back in? 
Yeah, I've never seen a more unanimously disgusted reaction from a panel than when <laughs> you mentioned the idea of like, you know, and there is genuine talks about playing um playing a final in Doha, which would be just catastrophic. Um, to come back to Ian's point there about, you know, like focusing on the fans and the fan experience, I completely agree. Like I think um any kind of final which is designed for broadcasters in like the USA or Qatar or wherever it is, like is just such a counterproductive move. But the flip side of that then is I think what this final can give is it can give fans um brilliant new experiences that they otherwise wouldn't get um in a rugby away day. Like Bilbao to me is the perfect example of growing the game with a final. You know, now obviously look, Bilbao, you know, you have you're in Basque country, like you have so many connections to the likes of like say Biarritz and Bayonne and the south of France and pubs like that, but like I would love to, like, I would genuinely love to see the EPCR explore venues. Like, for example, like, imagine Lisbon getting a Heineken Cup final now in the wake of uh, Portugal's phenomenal performance at the 2023 Rugby World Cup. Or, you know, um, even I think just like the idea of like experiencing a, a new European city, like, I mean, you know, bring it to somewhere like, Berlin and or um or some or you know somewhere else in or or even like I mean poor old Italy. Italy True. had the San Siro lined up for a Heineken Cup final mm. before EPCR came in. And it's criminal to me that like, you know, the Olympico or you know, the San Siro or any stadium in um in Italy hasn't been considered um for a final venue yet. Um and to me like genuinely like I would even you know, regardless of whether my team qualified for the final or not, if there was this like real destination final venue um, around, like, say, you know, a, a venue that I ordinarily wouldn't get to go to as a rugby fan, like I'd be all over it. Hugh talked there about um, the idea of a, a final in Cape Town uh, being kind of like a tap in. And I do think it's a matter of when, not if, that there is a final in Cape Town. It genuinely wouldn't surprise surprise me to have Cape Town announced as a venue for 2024 or 2025 but like you saw Stormers fans and the way they responded to the URC finals being held there uh, two years uh, two years in a row like they'd lap it up yeah just to follow on from Eric though like a really good point about the destination final sort of thing I mean what they were doing um, EPCR they were actually sort of announcing finals a, a good year in advance of, the, of when it was due to take place so I think Bilbao was a bit from a Gloucester point of view, just as because we obviously got to the final in Bilbao in the Challenge Cup. Um, the the problem there was that by the time you got to a point where you could actually get there, or you, when they, when we found that Gloucester could get there, it was like two weeks I think before the final. Bilbao was not an ideal place to get to. Um, you know there weren't any direct flights. Um, you can't. You, the, the options were a long bus dry, uh, journey or a ferry, um, a twenty four hour ferry, which again was limited. So that I, I I agree with you. Like Bilbao as a destination totally made sense, but actually when it from a from a rugby point of view, but from a fan point of view, it's quite difficult to get to. Um, it, you know, it wasn't ideal. Um, but you're right. So Milan, why that why that hasn't had? I mean, even Rome, why that hasn't had a a, a, a final is absolutely absurd. But I do think Lisbon, something like Madrid, Barcelona. Um, you know, they managed to play a, a Perpignan game in Barcelona. I remember, I think, in in the um, the top in the French 14 League, final. top 14 final. You know, what a great place to go and watch rugby. Obviously, you have to wait a few years before the new camp's sorted. But if you can get back to that process of giving people even just two years um, no, notice to say, right, 
again, like Super Bowl, they know you know five, six years out who's basically going to have each final. Champions League, you know three, four years out who's going to have each final. Um, it's probably going to be more appropriate for the likes of Leinster who are going to get there more often. But it does mean that if you fancy, you know, the whole great thing about these rugby finals is that it you, you've got fans from all over Europe. Um, and one of the big things I noticed during the World Cup was particularly in Lille, um, the number of German support, rugby supporters, Czech, uh, Romanian, Bulgarian, Hungarian, Austrian, you know, real kaleidoscope of, ru- of rugby nations you never, ever really see. Um, so somewhere in Central Europe, again, somewhere really could be on a Hungary, Budapest. What a, you've got a fantastic stadium, a beautiful city, a bit of a rugby heritage down there as well with Romania. You've got plenty of options. You just need to be a bit proactive in 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 um, in giving supporters a chance. Um, but 100% America, America, I wouldn't mind just because I'm a bit of a uh, I, I do like a, I do like the idea of a big uh, a big a big game at like Giant Stadium or something. But um, yeah, the Middle East can jog on. Absolutely no point for many reasons, including the most important ones. I don't really want to spend 20 quid on a beer. <laughs> the most important issues being covered on this podcast within, <laughs> within the five beer. square meters in which you'd be allowed to purchase and drink the aforementioned beer. <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd have to stand on each other's shoulders if if it weren't already. And it's important to touch on points like the final um, and the destinations and and the fans' outlook on this because the next point as well is is linked to it, and that is broadcasters. So Eric, you touched on it. It was Sky from the early 2000s through to the early 2010s through to 2018, I believe was their last year, but they weren't host broadcasters, um, primary host broadcasters for, for a long time. BT have been since the EPSR came on board, as you said, but not without critics. I think that's fair to say. Um, Ed, I'll come to you first. And even though the framing my point is more about the kind of contempt of disinterest that they have for non-English sides, you're a premiership fan. You watch BT the whole time but does it feel even to you that they don't grasp the meaning of European rugby like Sky used to um, it's difficult actually because as, as an English rugby supporter this is an interesting thing you probably I don't know if you've ever heard this before but uh, certainly at the latter end of the Sky Sports era um, of you know solely Sky Sports there was a bit of a constant complaint that Miles Harrison may as well have been a Munster citizen by that point um he, <laughs> he, was, he uh, was he just there's no point in even denying yeah. that he definitely was uh, um, and um so that and it then kind of very quickly shifted onto Leinster I should say um so I but I, I think that the move away from Sky Sports at the time was I think pretty well greeted because it had gone a bit stale um you know Sky had it for such a long time the same commentators the same pundits the same sort of formulaic um way of doing things and having a new idea and some new ideas and i think one thing i would say about bt sport or uh, was it uh, espn originally then bt sport was i did think i do think they've kind of moved things along a little bit in terms of the way that we cover rugby um there's some interesting ideas around um the sort of in-game coverage and um some of the features and things like that um i do think though and i i think one of the big issues as you said is that Certainly the French teams don't get anywhere near enough um, in-depth coverage compared to the uh, British teams. Um, maybe that's expected because the audience is going to be British, but you, you sometimes come into games when you're watching it and you're like, oh, uh, you know, whoever it might be, British team, English, Irish, whoever would be, um, uh, would, would, is going to easily win. And then the French team rock up, ha- ha- hammer them, and you've had no idea who half the players are. 
for someone who isn't particularly into rugby. And I think the other aspect as well um, um, regarding the the BT thing is that the um, the coverage, sort of the after we the weekend coverage, sort of the roundup coverage, is much more diminished than what Sky used to do. Sky used to do a really good European roundup. Um, I don't think BT have ever really got that with rugby. Um, and there's a lot of talk actually now um, on sort of socials in in England about. Um, BT Sport not having really a roundup coverage of even the English leagues. Um, I know we haven't got many games now because everyone keeps folding, but um, <laughs> that's kind of the principle. Also, I just want to quickly correct myself. I should never really say British. I should obviously say British and Irish. I'm very conscious that my Englishness took over there. I don't bit. think their um, coverage of us is going down too well here either. So I, no, but I just, I'm, be just, lumped con- with the I'm just conscious <laughs> in my own head. I'm thinking I've massively misstepped there. I should say British and Irish. Uh, just no, important it's there. <laughs> it's grand. We'll, we'll take it whatever way we want um, because that's what the Irish side of us will do. Hugh, it's it's... Listen, it's a it's a point that is divisive, the the point about the coverage, because as even Ed is able to say, they are focused on their target market. Sky's target market, there's no doubt about it, certainly included the Irish fans, because Irish pubs were packed for European finals in years gone by. Now I was at the final this year, so I don't know what it was like this year, but like it's it's just not the same. It hasn't been the same for for years. What have you made them, but also kind of the chopping and changing we had a split deal before we've had free to air which before last year was an excuse of a free to air deal where they basically just handed out the worst game possible like what have you made of the tv coverage of the last was it nine seasons so the tv coverage that you get to watch as a welsh fan is you get the bt which is i think fair to describe as english coverage which sometimes includes uh Welsh pundits, if the if there is a Welsh team playing, and like you said, there are free to air options. So Channel Four has had uh, games in the past, and I always found that coverage quite agreeable. They had Lee McKenzie presenting it, and I think that she's excellent. There's also S4C coverage; they get one game a week uh, for the Welsh teams, uh, which is purely Welsh language. So if you don't speak Welsh, you're out of luck. But I don't. People say they'd rather watch in a language they don't understand than uh, maybe some of the other broadcasts. Um, yeah, so it's, it's frustrating and obviously it being behind, it's not just the fact that it's behind the paywall, but it's behind another paywall. So you, you already had Sky or you, you've now already got VFA or whatever it might be and you've got, got BT on top of that. So it might be a case that you need to cancel your Sky subscription for a few months while you watch Europe or something like that because it is, it is very, very expensive. The coverage itself, yeah, like you say, very English heavy and we we know we know all the stereotypes about what that kind of is like, and it's an excellent point that you know if we think as, as Welsh or Scottish or Irish fans that we don't get a fair review, think what it must be like for French fans and, and now South African fans joining it as well, must be thinking, uh, hang on, mate, we hello, we exist and they were actually quite good. Um, so it's not been, I don't think, a win. I think the reason that BT as was wanted it was because it, it was going to be their, their thing because they didn't get all of the premiership football rights. So they said, okay, so we are going to be the rugby people and we're going to have English premiership rugby and we're going to have European rugby and we're going to be the hosts for that. And it was kind of a, a status thing for them. I don't know whether maybe they look back on that slightly regretfully now. And That's a fair point as well um, because uh, is the viewership levels at 
the level where they can justify, you know, being sole broadcasters. And maybe that is is part of the reason why they started to give proper games to free to air broadcasters. Like the first game last year that was on free to air in Ireland of last season was Munster against Toulouse. It was the most watched of the European pool stage games that was on RT. Now, granted, it's Munster against Toulouse. It will draw an armchair fan. But the problem was what wasn't drawing an armchair fan was watching Toulouse against Cardiff. No disrespect to either team. But at one o'clock on a Saturday where you have Premier League on, you might have GEA on, depending on what time of the year it is. Like it just wasn't, it wasn't working. Um, And that's a huge point. Eric, you want to just jump in before we move on? Yeah, just quickly, I suppose two things to say on that is number one, like I am of an ilk where I can remember the pitchforks being raised when Sky were being talked about as coming in as the sole broadcasters for the European Cup, because it was exclusively free to air in the Republic of Ireland anyway. And it was on BBC NI, I think, in um, in Northern Ireland as well. Um, and I remember when Sky were, um, they came on from, I think, about 2007, 2008 onwards as uh, the sole before, broadcasters. Oh, sole broadcaster was 07 and as a broadcaster was 04, I believe. Yeah, because I remember the 2006 one being joint broadcast between Sky and RT, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and I think, like, honestly, I think with BT, like, I think to come to Hugh and Ed's points there, I actually do think BT have been very innovative in some of the broadcasting solutions they've introduced like i would go so far as to say like bt pioneered the whole like pitch side panel thing where you're not in a studio like you're you're standing on the side of the pitch and you're soaking up the interview they pioneered like you know in-game kind of in-game interviews with coaches and players on the bench and everything like that and like i think i i actually think there are certain elements of bt's coverage that have become just as iconic as sky's coverage like nick mullins to me right now is as much the voice of european rugby as as miles harrison would have been in the past and i think i think nick mullins is an excellent commentator i actually think um you know where there's a there's talk here about you know broadcasters being biased in favor of this team this team this team this team i think that's actually the biggest possible argument you have for free to air which is let's all stop pretending that we're not biased and let's let everyone's national broadcaster just be biased in favor of the teams from that country. Um, like that's that's honestly, I think, one of the things that makes the URC great is that there are so many broadcasters in the home country and you're just getting like you as an Irish fan watching a URC game are getting coverage with an with an Irish slant, or as a South African fan, you're watching it on Super Sport with a South African slant. Um, and I think, um, Hugh made a very good point there about like rugby almost being like a last leader for BT. Like BT were so determined to crack the, the sports television market in, um, the UK. They just flung money at everyone and, and hoped it would stick somewhere. And it's obviously not worked out for them when you see them sending it on to Discovery as, as TNT sports. Absolutely. Tom, you want to jump in? Yeah. I think rugby in general, you know, we spoke on certain you know, commentators, you know, whether it be Sky or BT, but I think rugby in general suffers from a bit of what I'd call gripe commentary. Um, as in, you know, we even get into the URC where I think rugby doesn't have to sell itself to us six people. You know what I mean? We're, you know, so in some ways our, our views can be parked. If you have somebody like Smile Harrison, who's big enough that the big day on, on Sky Sports and Iden Cup, He's talking to the the wider masses. Yeah, it can get it can get a little, a little bit maybe Munster led as as Ed pointed out, or or maybe Leinster led. Um, but it was wholly positive. I I find a lot of commentary around rugby, even in the World Cup, is a bit gripe, a bit negative, and it's you know Hugh Cahill on RTE is is the prime example of it. 
Why'd uh, you have to? He's going to be in my fucking DMs now because he does this to everyone <laughs> every time he's named. No, I, I suppose it's it's always focusing on the negative of the product, yeah. the negative side of the product. And I think uh, BT have suffered a lot, little bit as well because if a French team or an Irish team is running away with the, the, the you know, and, ha- you know, apart from Saracens, you know, the favourites for, for the tournaments, say, for the last five years, a lot of the commentary is griping about why the English teams aren't there or why they aren't. And I get that. I 100% get that. But I think that's for another day in another forum. Um, I don't think we need to be hearing why the salary cap and the premiership is affecting why Leinster are miles ahead or why La Rochelle are miles ahead or Toulouse and how are we going to bridge the gap. This is in the middle of the gap. I don't mind the whole analysis on a Sunday um, when they're recapping it or, or a different forum when they want to discuss about. But like I, I find a lot of commentary around in every league is is can be negative tinged. And whilst we as diehard rugby supporters who will watch two flies crawling up a wall if they're wearing Newcastle and Breve colours on a, on a Friday night at six o'clock, we're not the market. And I think people don't like tuning in if if if, if Leinster are playing the Scarlets there the other the other week and it, it, it was a big scoreline. But if the commentator spends half the time bemoaning Scarlets, um, you know that's. It doesn't do anything for the for the neutral viewer because what they're what you're doing there is diminishing in the league and diminishing in the. I'm not saying it has to be all razzmatazz and false, bigging it up, but there's a happy medium between between being negative and being realistic. And and I do think that's that's an issue in rugby for the last ten years or so, where where a lot of it is you know focusing on the negative rather than the actual product of the game, what's happening on the pitch. You know, they tend to go off on the politics of what what's how we're here and why we're here. And and um, yeah, it's just it, we get the nuance, but it, I think the wider market you're not you're not doing any favors. They they want to tune in and watch a game of sport, and um, it's not that you're talking down to them, you know, I mean, at, at all like that. But you're you are trying to sell the product, uh, and and as Eric probably pointed out, if that involves big bias completely, you know, it is funny sometimes listening to South African commentators. <laughs> Been, been, you know, as biased as can be. Uh, but you know, they're they're talking to their own market, and if they're griping about the Stormers losing or or, or Connacht winning down there, whatever the case may be, fair enough, you know, whatever the case may be. But I just find that that's a problem that's across the the sphere in 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 rugby commentary uh, the last ten years. And, and there's no doubt about it. I think it's a it's a great point to be made. The fact that a lot of people are being shortchanged, and the greater market's being shortchanged in that regard because. Like, got to give BT credit. They will hype it up to the nth degree. I think their their issue is they don't know where the hyper hyper eh, hyperbole line is, and they probably go way over the top, or they go way under underselling it certain games. But at the end it's of the, the day, it's the Mar- it's the Marcus Smith uh, graph, isn't it? If yeah, you... that's exactly oh, it. On. Like, um, and it's no disrespect to him, but like, if you tell no, everyone but... a player is great, or even a good example is Northampton played Rossing two years ago could have been one of the COVID seasons and we're getting absolutely tonked and they spent about five minutes on why Northampton have been good in the premiership it's like yeah I get that but like you know you could talk about the fact that how good Rossing were you know as well like a, a little bit more balance even just a tiny bit can help other people and I don't know when you made the point there like imagine being a South African or a French person who's watching it here they must be they must be tearing their hair out if they if they have any left you know? That's where there's there's almost a sort of conflict of interest with BT being the Champions Cup and the Premiership provider. 
So if premiership teams are getting absolutely destroyed in Europe, they can't go, oh yeah, the premiership's rubbish because then no one will tune into the bread and butter competition that they've got on, on every other weekend. So I think that that's where that dichotomy comes in, that they can't afford to start a season saying, look, the chances are that most of the premiership teams are going to get beat because then that harms their own products. You know, they they are stakeholders and the better that their product does, the better it is for them. Yeah. Is, and that goes the same for like Formula One at the moment is another sport that's really suffering a, a reduced quality of products, but the the media can't come out and say that because then that hurts their own pocket. Absolutely. Ian, you want to jump in there as well? Yeah, all I wanted to say was bring back Stuart Barnes. <laughs> oh, no, that's that's no. a controversial statement. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> there's, there's certain people from Sky bring back Miles Harrison that won them. Will Greenwood, who's if you're on TikTok, his stuff on TikTok is really, really good. Um, no, and after no, that, I, I, no, I wouldn't have Greenwood down anywhere near my TV set. <laughs> this no. is an entirely different day's conversation. But who was everyone's dream team? Like this, this is the real meat and two veg of this conversation. I think. I think. I think Stuart Burns peaked at uh, who punched Tom Williams. Tom Williams. It was. It was. That's the election. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um, so that's TV covered, but a, an overarching point that we've made um across this is the fans, and love them or hate them, rugby inside line on Twitter tracked pool stage attendances last year, for instance, and like it was Munster and Leinster leading the charge for their home games. Granted, they don't play in the same weekend at home, but you know they were leading the charge, and the likes of a Toulouse were right up there. Um, I think I mentioned Toulouse Munster, like that was the most watched European game before the final last year. Like games like that were still doing well, but it was other games that there was a significant hit. I think Leicester Ospreys was the one that was basically be- played behind eight guys and their dog, you know. And that's a huge issue when a club like Leicester isn't getting a big crowd. I suppose, Ina, I'll come to yourself first. Like, there's so many different um, viewpoints because it's not a simple conversation. Prices are high. You know, not every game is on at a great time and all that. But is there an element that fans are feeling shortchanged and are just, you know, when you've got a format where you could win one game and get out of the pool, you're not as interested to go. I think the the, the, the format of the last two seasons has, has not been good. Um, and, and, uh, um, I, you know, I, I look at games like um, when Montpellier came up to Dublin and, and, and played Leinster with basically their academy team. Um, you know, who who wants to sit and watch that? You know, I... I, I, I didn't. I watched the game I that gorge. Montpellier won. Um, yeah. that, was, that was a great game. <laughs> yeah. I, I, go, I gorge on, on, on rugby on TV if I'm not out um, at the club watching or, or at Ravenhill watching. So, my, you know, my weekends are made up with that. But I don't want to sit and watch uh, mismatches, uh, and I'm sure nor do um, nor do fans. I'm sure Tom loves to get uh, loves to get a win, and we all know, we, uh, you know, we, we we can read his tweets um, regularly enough that he does love winning. But I'm sure sitting in the sitting in the stands uh, watching the like of that game. Uh, isn't doing anything to you know to 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 um, make the tournament any better uh, to make it you know 
yeah, I really want to go and see, uh, you know, so and so playing and stuff like that. There just just it just leaves a bad taste, and I think that's the format over the last couple of years. And some of that's down to COVID, but some of it's down to to the way that they laid the thing out. Uh, and I'm sure it'll get mentioned, but you know, Ulster got to uh, the last sixteen last year on the on on the back of one win. Um, we didn't uh, feature in rugby and St. Lines track pull attendances because we had zero at one. <laughs> um, so, you know, so the tournament just um, over the last couple of years, it just hasn't been as um, interesting. It hasn't been as, uh, you know, sort of mind grabbing. Uh, and uh, And you really go out of your way to, you know, say, look, uh, oh, uh, there's something else that I might want to do, and and uh, you know I've even found myself in the middle of some of this, uh, just saying, yeah, well I'll go and do that rather than than than, than sit and watch the games, you know. So, uh, you know, from from that point of view, uh, there needs to be an improvement. There is a slight improvement with the format again this season. I know there are flaws in that, and I'm sure we'll discuss that as well. Is this? Definitely flaws everywhere, but Eric, I'll come to you next. Like when you're looking at the same teams getting a big crowd, it's La Rochelle, it's Munster, Leinster, Leicester, um, Toulouse. It's it's the same teams. It's always the same teams who are selling out their stadiums, and even at that, like Munster play Bayonne on Saturday. I'm not saying this just because I won't be there, but that's not going to be a full house because. I think just the fact that it's it's Bayonne and you know it's and things like that. I'm not saying that it definitely means the fans are are not turning up, but as Ian said, when you've got games that have been such mismatches and teams aren't taking it as seriously, like and then ticket prices and all that, it, it really does add up, and it it doesn't look great when you compare it to what an elite competition should look like in the stands. Um. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't kind of just pinpoint it on the on the mismatches because like Munster for example we might have on average like some of the highest home attendances but we also haven't sold out a home pool stage game since November 2019 when we drew 21 all with um with Racing like I would say we're probably heading for about maybe 18 19,000 um, for the Bayonne game, which will fall a good chunk short of the total capacity of Thoman Park, but yet will still probably be one of the more um, attended games um, of the weekend. Um, I think there's like there's a there's a number of different factors. Like you know, there's a like globally, everyone is in a cost of living crisis at the moment. I think part of the thing of like scrapping the two games that were typically played in October as well as you don't build any momentum around the competition. You're coming in way too cold into December to have like round one, round two. And I suppose at that time, you know, kind of coming into Christmas and coming into everything like that, you're kind of thinking, okay, do I spend like, you know, my 40 pounds on going to this game and, you know, potentially getting beaten out the gate or do I put it towards like Christmas drinks or Christmas presents or whatever? Whereas if you've had two games leading into that, you're like, all right, we've won one of our first two. The home wing could potentially set us up nicely for the for the knockouts. And you build like, you know, you build that momentum. And indeed, it was like, you know, the last season pre-COVID when we still had six pool stage games 
um, which was when, like, you know, we still saw kind of like healthy attendances um, for home games um, in the Heineken in the Heineken Cup. And I genuinely like, you know, there is absolutely a cost of living crisis element there. Um, there is, um, you know, just I think the proliferation of, um, you know, of broadcasting now that now it's back to free to air probably probably has a knock on effect. But I genuinely just do think that the biggest, like the the, the biggest not uh, impact on stadium attendances is cutting two pool stage games, because you know. Ian mentioned there like Ulster qualified on one game, but at the same time, if you lose your first two games, you're pretty you can be pretty much on a hiding to nothing in your la in your last two. Whereas if you have two games in October, where you know that's typically kind of like the kickoff of the rugby season, where there's a lot of anticipation, there's a lot of buzz around your side's prospects. And if you know the narratives coming out of those two games, it's like, do we need to save our European run? Are we building a bit of a head of steam? Are we are we heading into, you know, a match against like big pool rivals? And also, I think one of the knock on effects of reducing the pool stages from uh, six to four and now doing this thing of you don't play the same team twice is you kill the December double header, which I always thought was the highlight of the pool stages um, of the European Cup, of both the Challenge Cup and the Champions Cup previously. Like. I think back to those horrible, like, shithouse duo of matches in December that we used to play against Cast. You know, I think of, like, back-to-backs against um, against Saracens, for example, you know, when we narrowly lost out in Vicarage Road and then beat them in Thomond. Um, I think of, like, you know, back-to-backs against Claremont, you know, where you'd scrap out a hard-fought home win against them and you'd go on the road, then you'd get a bonus point, you know, you'd get a, bo- a losing bonus point over there. And I think if there was, like, you know, it, it's it's churlish and it's reductive to kind of like point at one factor, because of course, like anything, there are a multitude of factors that go into this. But I do think that the single most negative, the single, the, the move with the with the most negative impact has been the scrapping of um, two of the pool stage games, because it just completely kills stone dead any momentum that can build behind any kind of narrative. And I know the round of 16 was brought in as, you know, a semi kind of a salve to that of, okay, well, there's eight teams that will get an additional home fixture. Um, but the round of 16 is, is just, it's pointless. Like it's, it's, it's a joke shot. Like some of the mismatches, like the Leinster Connacht game there, I, I, I don't think was it last season or the season before. Season no, it was before the last, season yeah. before. It was the season before when you had the home and away. Like that was, that was pathetic. Like, I mean, Connacht may as well have sent the kids up the road. Like Leinster were just, just imperious. Like, but, yeah, that's my two cents on it anyway. Yeah, and it's it's a great point because as as you said, it is kind of reductive to point out at one thing, but I think you could compare those October games as well. Maybe it's just a personal thing, but they say, you know, the Masters is the real start of golf and that's in April. And then everything then after that is when you really get into the swing of things. And those October fixtures felt like that. It felt like, right, we got our internationals back, you know, We've only had maybe four rounds of the league, I think it would have been at the time, and we're properly back into the swing of things now with these big games where you, you had to get a result. Whereas now, by the time you're in December, like we've had seven rounds of the URC. And to be quite honest, like Munster, each of Munster's last four games is more important than the game against Bayon on, on Saturday. You know, and that's that's just the reality of it. Like it's the it's the way it has it has changed. But the format is a point of it and it's something I wanted to talk about anyways and it's a nice way to segue into it Ed I'll, I'll start with yourself like 
Some say the 20-team format was the way to go. Some would say 24. Obviously, the French are, are a big one who don't want the 24 or at least the, the extra two pool games. What, does it make a difference in your eyes, the number of teams, or is it just the fact that we're constantly chopping and changing? Uh, I think I don't think that chopping and changing helps at all, for a start. I think it, it it's difficult to determine and follow as, as much as a simple... Um, twenty-team tournament as it was, you know, five groups of four, etc. Um, and the great thing about that was because of the the nature of that, you know, you had five group winners. They would then hover. They they'd obviously have um, uh, there'll be there'll be a fight to be home quarterfinal in that. There's also the fight to get in as the best runner-up. So there was always generally in every pool there was something on the final weekend. All right. There would always be one or two teams who would struggle and they'd drop out, but then that, you then had that challenge cup thing. You could drop down and you'd have the challenge cup and all of this stuff. Um, the, the, the biggest issues is, is uh, Eric sort of alluded to there was the, is the, the change in format full stop is just incomprehensible. So if you're, again, if you're someone who isn't necessarily familiar with rugby and European rugby, you're kind of getting into like, okay, well, hang on a minute. There's, there's 15 teams or 16 teams in this pool or whatever. And um, six of them qualify automatically. One, you know, Gloucester won twice last year. We got to the, the round of 16 to play La Rochelle. And we we're like, okay, you know, it, we, and there was no real buzz. There was no real excitement there. The year before, oh, a couple of years before, we beat Ulster in one game. And we managed to get through to the um, the round of 16 to get hammered again. Um, it's It's just... It's just daft. I don't, it doesn't make any sense. I think for me, the, the keep it as simple as possible. Twenty teams, and also it needs to be exclusive. I think the other issue as well has been is that that it's it's lost its exclusivity. Its exclusivity, if I can speak. Um, you know, if if you look at the English league right now, so we've got ten teams, and um, I, I'm not entirely sure if this has been enacted now, but there were talks of saying that top eight of the ten. That's, that's into... what it was for last year anyway. They yeah, kept yeah. it at eight, which yeah. is just, that's nonsense, really. It like, nonsense. Nonsense. I mean, it's nonsense and also ridiculous because Gloucester managed to still not qualify for the Champions Cup, which is <laughs> is, is, is a, a spectacular achievement in anybody's book. Um, <laughs> it's a bigger but... achievement than qualifying. We'll just put it that way. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm glad you said it, Ed, because I was going to sound so mean when I said. No, 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 no. Hey, no we, but you listen to our podcast, believe me, Crocky. It's, it's, it's. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's um. But no, the point that that point stands in is it's it's become less exclusive, um. And I think again that that feeling that you you've got you you don't have to take every game as seriously as you used to. I mean, for example, a great a great example like Tom would have had Gloucester played Leinster last year, and we sent kids over and got an absolute tonking. And actually, to be fair, I think we all Gloucester fans were looking at it and going, wow, we only lost by 50 points. That was impressive. <laughs> um, you know, and actually we probably played worse when we had our better team out when Leicester came to King's Zone. But, you, you know, as, as supporters, I think that's another thing as well, supporters. It, I think it, it really, really demeans supporters because clubs can turn around and go, right, well, Gloucester got Leinster. We're not going to win. We're just going to send kids over. People have spent, you know, nearly a thousand pounds to get over there and watch the, their side. There's people mm. traveling next week from Gloucester to Tbilisi, and believe me, it's it's planes, trains, and automobiles to get there. And I'm almost certain that we'll put a pretty ragtag team out because of how bad they are in the league. They want to probably save some people. But if you go over there and you know they put a crap team out, and um, 
and, and this isn't just Gloucester. This isn't just a Gloucester moment. This is across the board. There's lots of examples of this. French teams have done it for years, to be honest. But um, it's it's English teams always put their best side out unless they had nothing to play for. And the way the pool system worked, you always normally had something to play for because you had that challenge cap drop or something. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is is just killed. As, as Tom said, it's just and Eric just said, it's, it's just killed that that need to kind of play every game to its fullest. Um, I'd go back. I'd go back to twenty and and just and and make it harder to get into. Yeah. Before we move on, I want to get Tom and and Hugh's perspective on this. The likes of that Gloucester game because we're like we've got four Irish people here. Ed, you're you're a Gloucester fan. Who actually watched Gloucester Leinster last year? When you knew that Gloucester were sending, Ian did. Tom, I assume you did. Okay, okay. I'm just looking I like I a bad person because I didn't watch it. <laughs> now, as it, as it turns out, but I still think the point stands because you could pick out another six, another four Irish fans. None of them may have watched it. Yeah. You know, because you know, and yeah, some of that is because you're looking at one of the weaker teams in England against probably the second best team in Europe, and I understand that. But there is an element of well, there was a rule if. Maybe I'm entirely wrong on this. Maybe this is just fan fiction. There was a rule about the squads you put out and picking a European squad and it had to be within those limits and those that seems to be gone, especially since COVID um, probably should have come back in in particular. Tom, um, same thing with you with the format. Like, What's your overall thoughts and the as, as convoluted as it all is? Well, you know, without trying to repeat what the lads said, I think they've all summed it up succinctly. I think without question, the, the pool games reduce has killed the format. And what it's done is it's it's allowed bigger squads like Montpellier, who did qualify that year, even though you know they, they, they got a, a COVID walkover against Dutch, which was fair enough. And uh, they sent over like a, the under 12s. They still qualified. And if you look at the fixtures this year, you know, the six six teams in the, in the pool Four out of the six will still qualify. So it it even allows the bigger teams. Now Leinster will always tend to put out a fully fairly full strength team every week, but that you know, that may be a bad example. But it allows the bigger teams manage their squads as well. And 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 it it also allows teams that feel they don't want to win just do what Gloucester did or did what Montelia did, because they still know they can target other games. And as you pointed out, Ulster won one game. And qualified. I think Connacht won one game as well. Uh, they did, yeah. And qualified when Eric mentions we played them in the last 16. So it, it just allows the, the, the whole momentum, the, the, and even the fixtures itself. When you, when you come out, it doesn't matter if you're a Scarlet fan, Gloucester fan, Leicester fan, if you know that the six games, the six, or the, the six games you're going to have in the Heineken Cup and it builds that momentum. And as a Scarlet fan, you might be going, well, we're midterm in the league. Mid, mid table in the league but you know what we've got Saracens home and away in December or we've got them in October and we're going to try and turn them over or or the Bath three Scarlets which has got a big tradition gun it's got those types of matches where you can go you know we can turn them over in in, in a fairly full stadium but the, the format itself now just lends to too many disinterested matches and and you know we all most of us put our hands up when we said that we watched Leinster versus Gloucester again we're the wrong the wrong audience because we tend to watch it anyway Perfect, Helen. Uh, <laughs> Jeez, and I was at the final shouting for you as well. Like the yeah, things yeah. we do. <laughs> I, should say, know, I should say, I should say, Tom. Though, I mean, there were a lot of Gloucester fans who didn't watch that game. They just didn't bother because of what was the point? You know, it's like it was on. It was on BT. Um, we knew the side that he put out. I know a lot. I know a lot of Gloucester fans who just didn't bother. 
Yeah, I know. Which says, which says a lot. Yeah, it completely lets the fans in. I'd be annoyed as hell if Leinster ever did that. Even if we qualified for a, if we were qualified for a, a last sixteen, which basically two wins this year will will get you in, which is ridiculous itself. So with years ago when it was twenty or twenty four, um, there was always one or two dead rubbers in the, in games where a team was knocked out. But generally, all of the double headers at Christmas, the match three and match four, always mattered because that shaped how the group went. Even generally, all groups were still in play at match five. You had a couple of groups that maybe were done by match six. But it also meant that every other fixture in every other group mattered because of where you would finish one to eight. So you were also, as a Leinster fan, you're going, you know, we've got to play Wasps away and we need to get a bonus point win over here. But you're also looking at Munster playing at home to Toulon and maybe Toulon could, you know, stop them getting a win and bonus points. We finish seed four and they might, you know, and then you're that whole, you know, momentum and buzz of can we squeeze out a home quarter final? You know, that's generally gone because the last 16, uh, and especially the double header last 16 was a complete disaster because I, I, I'd i be surprised. I have to, I know our own result against Connacht, but I, I'd be surprised if on paper any stronger team um, lost over those two legs. Uh, I, I just don't, I don't think it helps any team. I think if, you know, if Toulouse should have lost against us, um, but that was more down to us than, than Toulouse, but uh, give up the game pretty near the end. But you're quite right, uh, Tom. I, I agree with yourself, Tom, there as well, because, mm-hmm. but the only point I make is I think the happy accident of this format is it has gone down to the very last game each of the last two or three years. Like last year, I was basically booking flights to London because I thought we were going to be playing Saracens and then Edinburgh turned them over. So like, we should, I know it's probably not by design in some regard, but it, it has changed seedings in that. But then at the same time, it did come down to an Edinburgh side who looked disinterested a week prior, turning over Saracens in a one-off game that, that changed it all. So there's, there's that side of it as well, I suppose. Yeah, I do. But I think we had that every year anyway. I don't think that's... Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, it's, not, it's not unique. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I just made a note under uh, under under your remarks, uh, Keelan, uh earlier today, and, and and it was just one sentence. It just said the qualification system means teams can afford to lose and still qualify. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I mean that's not a case of oh, you know, we can lose because the other team has played better than us. It means yeah. that we can lose. Physically, by putting out a, a, a team that that's not expected to win, and and that it, it, to me isn't what competition rugby should be about. It doesn't scream elite sport in yeah. any way that that can happen. Hugh, you want to get your say in on on this as well? Yeah, well, I just wanted to first to 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 beat you all in the the Scarlets qualifies for around sixteen a couple of years ago, winning zero games uh, because. That, oh uh, yes, too, that was the, long, the COVID um, year, wasn't it? Yeah, too long showed up to our stadium, and then five minutes before stepping on the pitch, decided that they were going to get back on the bus and go home. So we got a walk over, and that was our only win, uh, and uh, we qualified off the back of that. Um, yeah, I think the, the 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 lack of by reducing the number of games from six to four and removing the home and away. When Scarlets got to the semi-final that year, I think we lost, if not first three then at least the first two games of that full stage and it was one of those where we lost those and then we came back and we got back into it so that that maintains the interest for fans of 
okay, we, we've lost those couple of two, but there's still four games to go. You know, we can still really get into this. It's not something to play for. Whereas now with the reduced number of games, if you lose the first one, you're like, oh, that's probably it now. Um, the other thing that I'd say about that change of teams, which is a big conversation we've just had, as in putting out changed teams, it's a bit weird to me because in Wales we don't do that. We always put out our best team and sometimes we win, sometimes we don't. It's, I did uh, a few months ago, just for myself, a, a kind of a deep dive of teams, how they did in Europe and how they did in the league. And there's n- no correlation between if you go out early in Europe, you do better in the league. Northampton are the perfect example of this, where they chuck Europe every year. They've managed to finish bottom of their pool. I can't remember who did this. I think it was Humble Leinster supporter, I think it was on Twitter, did this analysis um, and said, Northampton have managed to finish bottom of their pool for three years in a row, which, as we've just said, is impressive in this pool format. And yet that hasn't yielded any particular success for them in the league either. And, you know, so, don't mean to pick on your head, sorry, but Gloucester's another one where fielding the change team in Europe didn't help them in the league. You can look at the French teams who do it. Again, Perpignan don't field strong teams in the Challenge Cup, doesn't stop them being at the bottom of the top 14 every year. So I, it, it feels like a bit of a fallacy in a kind of way that putting out these change teams doesn't actually yield anything. If you look at the teams who did well in the leagues, Munster, Saracens, Toulouse and La Rochelle, they all went far in Europe. So what what, what, what favours are you doing yourself actually putting the kids out? Well, we didn't go far in Europe last year, but we won't talk about the war that was playing in 40 degree heat and turbine because I get hot and sweaty and just even thinking about it um, in the first place. I do want to touch on some positives, which Eric alluded to earlier on, which is the Challenge Cup and whether or not that has been a positive. Um, like myself and Eric, yeah, we had this discussion. Of interest, yeah. <laughs> and Ed, Ed has actually won this competition. Well, so has Tom, to Twice. be fair. We've won it oh, twice. twice. <laughs> wow. The most successful Challenge Cup fan on the panel is not. I, I'll use that maybe next time you're on, but <laughs> not too much happened. And uh, Monst- uh, a bit of a uh, one for you stats fans there. Monster have lost their only uh, home Challenge Cup game. So they have a yeah. 0% home record in the Challenge Cup. Yeah, fucking Connor O'Shea. But, <laughs> but Eric, you, you said it during the week, like even having the same city, same venue finals weekend has been great. I this year is the first time I went to both finals. I absolutely loved the day before. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. You know, the 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 crack around Dublin was probably better the day before, just simply because everyone was so relaxed. Um there was not much relaxing feel on at half four on, on the Saturday. But Ed, I'll start with yourself as as the two time supporting fan, winning supporting fan. What have you made of the Challenge Cup over the last couple of years, and and do you think it's kicked on in any way? So up until COVID, um, I think there was it, it was starting, I think, to have um, a, a bit of an impact because the French teams were starting to take it seriously. That was always the issue going back through the years that the French teams did not care. And it was great because it meant the English teams had a chance. Um, hence why we won two of them. But um, it's it started to go a little bit better. I, I definitely think that the um, the change in venue helped. So if you were one of the big issues, I always thought was the Challenge Cup. So it would be in the same sort of vicinity. Um, I mean, when Gloucester have won both their Challenge Cups, it's been at the Stoop, while the Champions Cup final was at Twickenham. Um, and having it in the same stadium 
um, I think is a big, big uh, bonus and a plus. Um, you know, I, I went to Leon in 2016 and it was fantastic. Really, really great um, uh, experience that. Did Edinburgh the following year with Gloucester and we lost to Stad, but again, really great. Um, and then obviously I didn't get to go to Bilbao, but, you know, we had Bilbao the following year, I think, after that as well. The um, uh, Yeah, so I think all in all, this uh, the, having the smaller stadium, having the ability to fans to go over across a whole weekend, they know they're going to be in the same place is great. Um, I like the idea that they've come up with with terms of trying to expand it. Um, I probably would have not had another South African side in if I could have chosen. I would have probably said, look, we, we've got the South African sides in the Champions Cup and one in the Challenge Cup. We don't need to kind of just randomly invite another one over. Um, let's have, I mean, there were offers, I think, for a, a Portuguese team. Uh, there was an Israeli team, probably in hindsight, a good thing that we didn't go down that route. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, so I think this idea of moving to like George, having the Georgian team, Black Lions, who Gloucester are playing uh, next week, I, I think that's a really positive move and it, it, it can only be beneficial probably in the long run to, um, to, to rugby and the growth of rugby. So I, I think the Challenge Cups probably has been the positive um, out of this. And I think also the fact that you you do get that drop down from the Champions Cup. So you do get those teams that probably, you know, they just have a shocker. They, you know, they get they come out and they don't get the results they should get or or whatever, um, giving them another opportunity and gi- and then giving those Challenge Cup sides someone to aim at um, in the in the knockouts. Yeah, there's, there's that too. And funnily enough, I think last year was a prime example. Like once the pool stages finished last year, most people penciled in Racing to go all the way to the Challenge Cup final and then they lost the round of 16 game down in Johannesburg. So I think there's a, a layer of intrigue when, when teams drop down as well. Hugh, you said it's your area of expertise, which I find hard to believe. I feel like Scarlets are in Europe, are in the elite competition more often than not. But what, what have we're you actually in the Scarlets are actually in the top 10 for uh, appearances in the senior, if you like, the top competition. It's only recently that we've fallen out of it, really. And that was in the last year of Wayne Pivak's um, tenure but as a competition you know it's the one that you watch the other Welsh sides in you know in Wales we do all watch each other and mostly wish each other well apart from the Ospreys and uh, it is like I said it's that it's that chance to you are playing against weaker teams who occasionally are putting out the weaker side so it is a chance to get the wins stacked up and you do have a chance to go on that run and get to semi-finals which the Welsh teams regularly do so it is nice. I I kind of get why cheaters were included in it. You know, there's an argument amongst some people that it was a bit unfair that they got cut from the URC. They didn't necessarily deserve to get cut because they had been quite competitive in it. Uh, but it's really cool that uh, Black Lion are in it. It's going to be fascinating to see where they're at because they have got a fair old bulk of Georgian internationals in, in their team. They were just at the World Cup. And if, you know, the likes of Gloucester or whoever do feel we pissed a weaker team against them, it could be a shock result there. We don't know. So that, that seems like helpful. With the Champions Cup size dropping down, I don't know whether that's a good or, or a bad thing. Back in, and Cardiff won it first time. They, I believe, had dropped down from the Champions Cup and they played against Toulon uh, in the final. And that was like a Champions Cup game, essentially. Those two teams were above that level. Uh, whereas now, I don't know whether the Champions Cup teams are going to drop into it and just go, uh, okay, well, we double don't care. 
I'm just chucking it so that doesn't need to be seen moving forward, I guess. But I think it's not, you know, to to some people who maybe uh, support clubs who have never been in the Champions Cup or or very rarely, I look down at it, but I think for the teams who were in it, for some of them, it is like a, we only only compete for two pieces of silverware all year. Let's go for this one. And it is a, it is in terms of an experience, 70, 80% as good as the Champions Cup. That's fair. Eric, I, I know we discussed this, we trashed this out during the week, so I want to get your take, but I'll just jump to Tom for a minute who wants to jump in. So Tom, Challenge Cup, Leinster 2013 winners of the Challenge Cup as well, I, I should stress. I'm trying to get all the accolades in there while I can. Um, keep, keep you happy, it was in the RDS. Just... <laughs> <laughs> there's, not, there's nothing about me here. <laughs> what, no, what you, think, you I, I think, from afar? The only point I was going to make was, I think if I had a magic bus, I could fill it up with the coaches from the different clubs or the, the the team owners and bring them to a Challenge Cup final because I've been lucky enough I think I've done 12 or 13 Heineken Cups and, and all bar one I've I've seen all bar one Challenge Cup I've, I've gone to as well in those 12 or 13 and it didn't matter if it was Biritz beating Toulon or Queen's beating Stade Francais or Gloucester winning or Cardiff winning the utter joy that the supporters like it's a hell of a trophy to still win you know there's only three trophies you can win um, that's worth talking about, and and without sounding arrogant, because believe me, I want to be as far away from arrogant as possible. But if Leicester, if Leinster put their mind to it and decided to win the the the, the Heineken or the Challenge Cup as it was in twenty thirteen, well then there's no excuse for anybody else. That doesn't mean they'd win it. But I just I can't understand the logic of coaches of you know they can only win two trophies maybe and they have a chance to go on a strong run. And in fairness to the English teams who are in sort of to call it the bottom part, they, they have embraced it and gone after it. But I, I think if I could fill up a bus of um, team managers or team owners and, and bring them to a Challenge Cup and, and just see what it's like for a team to win a, for, to win a European Cup. Um, and as, as Ed pointed out, they're, they're, they're in places like the Stoop or it was Cardiff Arms won, you know, different different grounds. Um, seen La Rochelle win one. Um, you know, that's what it's all about. I just can't understand the logic of, of teams literally throwing the competition. I can half understand France at, at the beginning. They, they tend to come into it as, as the knockouts come in. They'll start going after it then. But it, it beggars belief that, that some teams seem to think it's not worth their while. And, and the correlation, is, as some have pointed out, means that it doesn't necessarily mean the league is affected or their league, in, in a lot of cases, I would say, building up Europe and momentum like that and uh, helps your league run maybe if you're if trying to fight relegation or or if you're going to try to get to the playoffs and uh, it'd be interesting to see somebody looking at the data on that but I, I I just can't believe some of them some t- clubs a lot of clubs don't take it as serious as they should because again what we've what the common theme tonight is is a bit short changing uh, supporters and if you've paid money um, and you're in a competition and you just sort of throw it um, you know maybe like Munster did against in the challenge, challenge cup, the one year they're in it, but uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just I don't know, I don't get it, I don't get the logic of it. Ah, no, I agree. And to be fair, we've liked Leinster enough times for me to absolutely take that one on the chin. But Munster did send a good team to breathe, um, in the quarter final, and then just got turned over by a good Harlequin team, just for the just for the interest of fairness. Um, Ian, you want to jump in on challenge cup? Yeah, I just wanted to. Um sort of back up what Thomas said there. We we dropped into it um twenty twenty one. Um 
uh, into the round of 16. We met a very poor Harlequin side. But we got to semi-final, which we should have won. And I can assure you that the um, the emotions of losing that game were every bit as bad as the emotions of losing finals to Leinster, quarterfinals to Leinster in the in the Champions Cup. So, you know, once you get to that stage, you want your team to win and, and you'll back your team. Uh, and again, I agree with Tom about the, uh, you know, those years. I've been to a few myself, uh, um, uh, Challenge Cup uh, finals. Um, I always remember that one in the stoop, but I think it was one of the best games, one of the best games for, for, for a bit of crack and a bit of fun that they've ever been to. The match itself wasn't great. I think it was 9-6, a uh, bit to be a Ritz or, and that one. But um, yeah, just the, the, the whole the whole thing, and it's all about fans. I've said that at the start, and I'll say it again. It's all about the fans uh, and the experiences. And the end of the day, we are six fans sitting down here talking about something that we all clearly enjoy and would clearly forgo weekend plans to to watch and consume. So if we do feel disappointed if our teams were to field weekend sides, then that's it's absolutely deserved, I, I feel like. Eric, you're you're the catalyst for the reason that we, we're talking about the Challenge Cup and thank you for reminding me to, to bring it up as well. What's your overall thoughts? Do you think it it has kicked on? Um, I think it's a success story of the EPCR era. I really do. Um, I think whatever about um our discussions about the impact that the EPCR governance has had on like the premier product, which is the Champions Cup, I think it's actually enriched the Challenge Cup. And I think the best move, I think two of the best moves that they possibly did there were number one, holding both finals in the same venue. Um, if you look back uh, historically through the attendances um, of finals, uh, there are a couple of outliers when it comes to the Challenge Cup historically. Like there was that mad final play between Toulon and Cardiff in Marseille where Cardiff absolutely um, like somehow came in and totally ransacked uh, ransacked a win. It was something crazy like 54,000 people at that Um there was a 1999 final play between Montferrand and Bourgon uh, that was played in Lyon that had 31,000 people at it. But apart from those outliers, you typically had like maybe anywhere between like six and 12,000 people at a Challenge Cup final. Now, if you look back to the last ones, like there's 31,000 people in Dublin for Toulon versus Glasgow and delighted that 31,000 people got to watch Glasgow getting hockeys. Um uh, you know, there was 51,000 people uh, in Marseille for uh, Lyon versus Toulon. Um, there was 28,000 in St. James's Park for Clermont versus La Rochelle. Like 28,000 for two French teams in Newcastle in the uh, in the Challenge Cup final. You could barely get that many people to Dublin in 2003 when Toulouse played Perpignan in the Heineken Cup final back in the day. Like you 30, like, you know, bringing it to and that happened from 2016 onwards when it was played in Leon and it was played in the same venue um ever since like that to me in terms of like just upping the scale of the challenge cup and really like the the pizzazz and the razzmatazz and the aura of like you know um kind of heft and worth around it like that was such an important move because there's there's a hell of a lot more to be said playing in front of 50,000 fans in Marseille 
and playing in front of seven and a half thousand in Ike en Provence or wherever wherever the hell like you want to you want to throw it. Um, I do think where there's been a bit of a misstep is the lack of a qualification, the persistent, like the the current lack of a qualification tournament into the Challenge Cup. And you did have that with the Continental Shield previously. Um, and I would be shocked if there was any person more than me who watched the last Continental Shield final between Heidelberg and NSA STM, uh, which was played on the back pitch in Edinburgh. Um, but... Um, you do have are like they two legged playoffs. I was researching these earlier. Are they two legged because some some of the score lines are like seventy points to fifty. They're way, they were once upon a time, as far as I'm aware. I'm I have Wikipedia. I have like you know everyone's favorite source, of, like verifiable verifiable source of information. Wikipedia here in front of me. Um, but um, what was I going to say? Um, the rugby you have the rugby super cup in existence at the moment, which has like teams from the Netherlands, from Belgium, from Israel, like the aforementioned um Israeli team. Um, uh, you have Black Lion who are in their third final of three iterations of the rugby super cup, heading into uh their run in the Challenge Cup. Um, they've won the previous two, and um, they're playing a strong Tel Aviv Heat side. Um, but. You know, I think instead of the invitational teams, um, and I totally agree that like inviting the Cheetahs to play their home games in Amsterdam, except when they play the Lions and then they get to play it in Johannesburg, um, is a bit farcical. It reminds me of that time that Saracens took a home game to Belgium in the champ in the Champions Cup. And then um, they cancelled as well. No, it very much was played. There was just no the Saracens fans there. That's no. not. Well, I, I mean, mean, that's not hard. That's... To be fair, there's no Saracens. <laughs> I was going to say that's par for the course for there to be yeah. no fans in Saracens games. In the woods. Yeah, exactly. Um, if a Saracens, what is it? If a Saracens match happens and nobody's around to hear it, was it actually played? Um, yeah, because it's not BT. But um, <laughs> uh, but sorry. Anyway, the long and the short of that is, is I think the lack of a proper qualification um, competition into the Challenge Cup is the last missing piece there. And I would love to see the Rugby Europe Super Cup act as that. Now, there's like, you know, Rugby Europe Super Cup is, isn't organised by EPCR. It's or, organised by, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the um, the organising body. Um, it's the one that organises the kind of secondary, second tier competition. Rugby Europe as well. or something like that. Rugby Europe, Europe, that's, Europe yeah, yeah, Rugby Europe, that's the one. And I think to have that and to have like, you know, the likes of, um, you know, Black Lion, the likes of, um, you know, the, Lus- the, the Lusitanos, uh, which is effectively just like a, the, the Portuguese national side at, at development level. Um, you know, even like you used to have teams from, remember you used to have the Bucharest Wolves, uh, you've had Spanish teams in the past. Like, you know, it was a Romanian team that played in the first ever fixture in the Heineken Cup. Um, Farrell Constantina played, um, played Toulouse in Romania. So like, you know, there are so many other, you know, we were talking earlier about the idea of destination finals and the fact, you know, the fact that there are so many other rugby fans in Europe that don't live in one of the six nations or Georgia or Romania. And I think to expose those countries to second or third tier European competition and give them a chance to compete um, would be very, very much welcome in terms of up on the Challenge Cup by another level and really using that as kind of a cornerstone of EPCR's mission to grow the game. That's absolutely. And, and well surmised again there, Eric. We've gone on plenty long enough. It's been brilliant. I 
really should have organized this as a two-parter looking back um, because I have six men who, who have strong opinions on it or five men and, and your host who didn't let his strong opinions change the conversation too much. You're not allowed to have an opinion when you're the host, Caelan. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a, it's actually a killer, you know. <laughs> but apparently I still have two strong opinions as a host. I don't know how it might work. But I do want to finish up by looking to the future. And, you know, there's no point in us sitting here for an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, talking about every mistake they've made without offering some sort of future planning or some sort of ideas. Um, So, Tom, I'll start with yourself. Like, firstly, where's the competition go? Like, is it on its last legs? Or do you think there are places where they could just add a bit of rejuvenation, breed life back into a competition we all know and love? And where where would it be for you? Um, in some ways, we you know, as a as a supporter and as a, as a, as a lover of the sport, you have to take nearly a two pronged look at this. Like from a from a supporter point of view, I'm just going to still embrace the competition and go to King's Home or go to Toulon or go wherever, and that won't that won't stop for me. Um, because I think it's it's yeah we we've touched on it all since 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 the start of the pod about what what it means to us individually and what it means to a lot of supporters, um, no matter where you are from in Europe, um, but from the practicality point of view, look, I think we're going to have still plenty of turmoil in rugby Europe for want of a better phrase for the next two three four five years. Obviously, the the English Premiership, um. Uh, if you look at the URC and it's many guys is now the South Africans are in and then you see the struggles of two or three teams in the Premiership going and you have the likes of even the Jersey Reds and <clears throat> going as well. So is there a possibility of a, of another uh, uh, reincarnation of of some sort of a British and Irish league? I know Hughes perked up at the thought of Wales playing English teams in the league as all Welshmen have wanted to do for the last uh... I think we found the one Welshman who does not want a trip <laughs> I can't say it lost this time but a trip to Northampton <laughs> no but I, I, I think I think that's still on the back burner um, I just you know the, the, the we'll call it turmoil within the two main leagues between Britain and Ireland which is the URC and, and, and the, the English Premiership until that settles down and don't ask me when's that going to settle down because you know the there's just so we've we've touched on some of the stuff that clubs going bust and, and and people losing their jobs. Um, until that settles down, I don't think the European project will settle down fully because we don't know how that will affect any. Because basically, the European Cup then becomes becomes a new you know call it URC one or URC two point um, plus the French, um, and I think you know. It, in, in lost sight of all that is a lot of stuff Eric has touched on is about all the, the teams across Europe that tend to be forgotten about uh, where the growth really is um, I think we've touched on a lot about where where we should where the the, the, the sport should try and grow the game um, but I, I do think it gets lost um, not keeping the fans central to it we've spoken about um, you know Ian pointed out you know the, the fans have to be central to it and, and it doesn't matter if you're a fan of La Rochelle or Leinster, or 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 you're 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 a fan of a, a team in in Romania, you're you you have to give some platform for that team to compete on the European stage, um, or whatever level it is, one, two, or three. So I, I think until the, the domestic leagues sort themselves out, I I just we're going to see another transition and another transition of what European rugby is, uh, for another ten years. That won't stop me, 
park on that because you can get lost in the politics of it all. You know, you could end up 60, 70 years of age and get caught up just dealing with the politics. At the end of the day, rugby still about, the sport is still about going away to these grounds and enjoying the actual what's happening on the pitch. And we can all get caught, too caught up with what happens off the pitch. Um, I, I think if we lose sight of that, I think the game is more than screwed if if if, if it's all off pitch stuff that's worrying. I, t- I still think, you know, whether you're a Munster fan going to weekend, you know, against Bayonne, you know, it's still a big European Cup night. Um, if we lose sight of that, and I think a lot of clubs um, have lost sight of that, and that's why we're talking about it tonight. I think they've lost sight of 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 what the European competitions means. But I, I can only see another ten years of this churning again, and 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 before it settles down, if it ever. That w- that would be my thought as well, Ed. What what do you think? Do you think we'll we'll get stuck in? Maybe not a rut, but stuck in the same cycle. Or do you think there will be that push to improve it? Or even, as Tom said, if we end up having an expanded URC, is it done? You know. Um, the argument. I mean, the, the arguments for an expanded URC or a uh, a joint British or English Welsh sort of thing, um, obviously are, are louder than they were four or five years ago um you know just from the financial turmoil that we we're experiencing in england particularly um i personally think what probably the, the, there are very easy solutions to a lot of this stuff i think we've kind of touched on it throughout the pot uh, throughout the pod um simplify the, the structure um i think I, I get that the french are a bit touchy on uh extra pool games and stuff like that well do you want to win the biggest competition in world rugby in club rugby because that's what it is fundamentally um look you know it, you can't have everything you want just because you're the french um so I, I would probably go back to 20 teams um simplify the structure um there's there's other things as i said making sure that um the the clubs treat the fans better i think Obviously, you can't. The, the, the one thing we haven't really touched on is that not every club has the same deal on tickets as, the, you know. So, for example, we get our season ticket in our season ticket. We get the Champions Cup games or Challenge Cup games included. I know other clubs don't, and it depends on where the venue is. I think Leinster. I think I think we said this before that if it's a game at um, the Aviva, that doesn't necessarily count in the season ticket. Whereas if it's at the RDS, it does. Or I'm not sure that's that case, Tom. Yeah, no, uh, it's included. The pool games are all included in the season ticket. The only thing yeah. that's extra is is the knockout games, which, which never... that that normally applies. Yeah. But I know that not all yeah, monster. Yeah, yeah, not all um, not all uh, 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 clubs do the same thing. So there's there's little things like that. If you could kind of unify that, that would be useful. I, I I'm I'm kind of resigned to the fact that, as Tom said, there's going to be a bit of churn here because I, I think fundamentally the other thing that I think it definitely upset probably more English supporters was probably the inclusion of the South African sides. I didn't personally think there was much need for that. Um, I understand there are, there was probably from a, a URC economic point of view, you know, that, that there's a whole ream of things we could go into about um, the, the benefits of having South African teams in the URC. And clearly if you've got them in the URC, why wouldn't you have them in the, in the, in the European competitions? It, it devalues the URC if you can't get them in the European competitions. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably overall more positive. I just think it, it's, it might not take as long as Tom was suggesting, maybe ten years. But I, I think um, the first thing is sort out the, 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 the qualification and stuff like that. Um, make it more exclusive and make it simple for a fan's point of view. Do that, and you, you're kind of halfway there. And you've just got to rely on the fact that there will be a, at least six English clubs still around um, in three or four years' time. Hopefully, um, like we can all mess and joke and everything, but like we don't want to see it with just four English sides and one of them is Saracens that's left um, in English rugby. Um, no, no, but, no one wants that, honestly. No, <laughs> if, if Saracens were next to go, I actually think to be a party, to be honest. But uh, yeah, well, as Saracens are the reason why everyone. Well, I mean, without going into too much of a rabbit hole, Saracens are the reasons why there's uh, it's it's uh, an absolute toll in, in England in the first place, but. That's yeah. a whole other discussion. Yeah, Hugh has argued the idea of wage inflation with with Saracens fans on Twitter before. I've seen, but it, it, they they don't seem to buy it. <laughs> from what I've Both seen, both of them got really angry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I I really I bought if any Glasgow supporters left listening to this or Saracens supporters, but to be honest, that's not my target audience. In um, you've got. It's great points made by Ed and and Tom about you know maybe it's going to be you know slight changes but they have to make it. It actually kind of reminds me of the old coaching phrase: "Do the basics right." And maybe if they just start doing the basics right, like the format, then it will grow organically. I um I would tend to agree with that. Yeah. Um. My my. My real desire, I suppose, is to have it back to 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 where it was, uh, like like Ed has said, uh, back to the twenty teams. I think the the higher up the leagues that you can pick your your competitors from, the better brands that you're going to get, and, and the mismatches become less and less. I think we we've been a wee bit fortunate um, uh, with the addition of the South African teams in the URC. I think that has rejuvenated the URC uh, or the or the Celtic League, if you want to call it call it that. So, in in one way, they, they you know we've had a wee bit of comfort come from that uh, over the last two or three seasons, where the European competition has been devalued a bit. So. Um, um, I, I take what Ed says about the South African teams. Maybe the English fans maybe weren't that terribly happy with that, but I think if, you know they're bringing a, a certain brand of rugby to that. And I think you know there's no reason why um, you know Stormers or Bulls couldn't be uh, featuring in the in the um, the uh, knockout. Um, this year in the in the European competition and maybe go further than some of us might expect. So those are all positives, um, and maybe the powers that be will will eventually come round to the the idea the rest of us have had um, that um, the old format was good and let's get back to it. Yeah, maybe. And it would be quite fitting if they did eventually come <laughs> full circle after that being their supposed big <laughs> grievance, even though it never was their big grievance, but it, it would be kind of ironic. Hugh, I, 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 understand, sorry, I understand fully the French idea. The French put a lot of stock into their own 
their own top 14 competition, probably more than any of the other two leagues do. Uh, and I can understand why, uh, you know, they, they don't want to go back to, to the longer format. But um, um, somebody's going to have to persuade them. Yeah, well, hopefully we can. And to be fair, like the English and French are the ones who push back against this. The French have a great league. The English had a great league. I think it's fair to say it's probably not great at the moment, which is a, which is a sad reflection, to be honest. Hugh, um, in terms of the EPCR and looking forward, you know, so often we we look to the youth to um inspire a bit of something different. Have you any ideas as to how they can change things up? It's difficult because it's against a backdrop where club rugby as a whole, apart from in France, really is under threat because of the greed and the expansion of the international game, where the international game is seen as the, the only real viable way to, to make any money in rugby union. And uh, club sites are either fit, um, funded by wealthy individuals or are funded by the national game, uh, the unions uh, reinvesting into those clubs. So I, I don't know, because the thing that I would suggest is exactly what everyone else suggested. It's going back to the old style with the, the proper pool format. But I, I don't know whether that injection of extra games into the club calendar is what we need at the moment. When there's, we're struggling so badly for space as it is. And the URC has had to really refine over time the amount uh, or the, the way in which the, it schedules and structures itself. And it, there's still imperfections with the way that we do it in this league so i i'm, I'm not sure uh, that there's there's the space really and you know that's doubly true for the top 14 sides where they play 26 regular games a year which is a crazy crazy amount so i'm not sure it, it just doesn't feel like there's enough room in the year um and it's not realistic you know we i think in the northern hemisphere We've been guilty of kidding ourselves into thinking that rugby can follow a football scheduling model where you can just keep playing games and playing games and playing games all the time and you, you can't. And it, it's getting to the point where it's, is it even possible to field the same 23-ish for four weekends in a row? And the, you know it feels like the answer is getting towards being no. So, yeah, without wishing to be too negative, I'm, I'm not sure whether... It's sustainable and you have to look at the advantage that the New Zealanders get from their rugby calendar where they play all in one block when they go into the international half of the year and the, the, the joys they get out of that. Obviously, Australia being the, the other opposite of that, but for different reasons. I'm not, I'm not sure that whilst as a product for Europe itself, going back to the old side would be better. I'm not sure if that's feasible in the overall background it finds itself in and it's it's a fair point as well it's only we can change a lot of things we can't change the amount of weekends in the year um at the end of the day eric i'll, I'll give you the closing words you know we've we've talked about fans we've talked about formats pretty much everything over the last two hours or so do you think the epcr will will not grapple with it but will the competition back to where we want it to be, or at least in a better position than where it's been the last couple of years, and that we'll all be happier. We might all, we, they won't please us all, but we'll all be happier. 
I mean, at this stage in its existence, Kaylon, I wouldn't trust EPCR to organize its way of, out of a paper bag, never mind um, reorganize the European competitions into an effective format. Like, I genuinely think the way to go here is just increased exclusivity. Like, I would go so far as to say reduce it to four pools of four, um, have five have five qualifiers from each league, a Challenge Cup qualifier, and then the Champions Cup winner takes the fifth play, the fifth qualifying place in their league if they haven't otherwise qualified. Um, I think the spectre that's looming over all of this though is the agreed format for this Club World Cup, um, that they're talking about, and I think this fits into like what Hugh said there, where you know the international we are inexorably creeping towards the international game being the be all and end all and i do firmly believe that like in the future the only way for clubs to survive will be possibly with the exception of like the french model but certainly within england wales and scotland i think the only way for them to survive will be to become union owned clubs similar to the irish provinces because i think the union is the only one that will have a, a sufficient level of funding and b a sufficient level of continued interest in the existence of these clubs to keep them going because like you don't own a rugby club to be rich um in this day and age um i think the club world cup sadly though like you know we've we've kind of talked about like getting gate receipts up getting fans up getting fan engagement up and i don't think with like the the gung-ho attitude towards a club rugby world cup i don't think that's done with either of those two things in mind i think it's done with one thing in mind and that is television revenue um, like one of the main reasons why the South African teams are brought into the URC is because the television revenue in the TV market, TV rights market there is quite lucrative. Um, the sponsorship uh, revenue there is quite lucrative. And I think one of the main reasons why they want to um, bring in New Zealand, um, New Ze- uh, why they want to bring in Super Rugby Pacific teams, and I think teams from Japan League One into, um, uh, into a, um, a Club World Cup is because A, they see the benefit of kind of increased TV rights there and B, Rugby Australia apparently need to keep getting 40 million shots in the arm to to stay alive. I mean, like not like any of the Australian franchises in Super Rugby would qualify for it anyway. Um, but to answer your initial question, Kaylon, I don't have faith in the EPCR to bring it back to um, to kind of like what it was. I think the European Cup, as like a lot of us knew it, um, be that the Challenge Cup or the Champions Cup, I think that magic is kind of dead and gone at this stage, I'm afraid to say. Um, I think there will probably be, and actually, to be honest with you, I think a large part of that with kind of, you know, certainly with um, Irish fans, is that the URC as a product has become so much better in the last couple of seasons than when we had like all we had was the interprovincials when the when the European Cup kicked off. We had the Celtic League and then it went through its like, you know, alphabet soup of Rabo Guinness Pro Direct 14, whatever you're having yourself. And it feels now like with the URC, it's a settled, solid product. And you saw yourself, Kaylon, from like Munster fans' reaction to winning the URC title um last year. It was akin to winning a European Cup. And no more than like I'm sure if um if Ed if Gloucester were to lift the premiership in Twickenham, you'd probably say the same as well. And you know, I think the growth of I think the growth of national leagues is automatically going to undercut the European Cup. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing either. But I think that 
you know, similar, I think that just touching back on the point that Hugh made about the growth of the, about the international game being seen as the only way to earn money. I think what we're actually going to see on the club side is more and more opportunities for games that suit TV rights deals and don't necessarily suit um, fans or suit date receipts, be that finals played in the US or Qatar, be that a club World Cup competition, be, be that, you know, exhibition. Like, I mean, there's always been talks of taking like an exhibition game to Boston or New York or somewhere like that in the Heineken Cup. And I genuinely think that what we'll start to see more and more of is um, arrangements that favour TV deals and not necessarily those that favour fans that will actually be standing in the terraces or sitting in the stands. It's a very fair point. And it, it should be said, like, maybe the Premiership has taken a hit over the last couple of years, but the other two leagues are at their probably all-time high. And maybe we just can't have it everywhere. The Six Nations in my opinion, is is at its best in terms of the actual, just purely the standard of rugby. We've had our best ever World Cup in terms of the standard of rugby. Maybe there is just a natural element to something has to give sometimes. And maybe European rugby is just one of those because that's that's how life works. Gentlemen, we'll leave it at that. It has been absolutely brilliant to spend the evening with you talking about something we all clearly love. My thanks again to Tom, to Ed, to Ian, to Hugh and to Eric for just a brilliant conversation. Um, there's no doubt about it I hope everyone who tuned in I hope you all enjoyed the podcast as well if you have any comments opinions questions even podcast ideas you can find us on Twitter on YouTube wherever you get your podcasts on Instagram on Blue Sky which is the the flavour of the month at the moment all at Get On S Rugby I'll be back later in the week with a solo podcast previewing the upcoming ah, might as well say it, the upcoming Heineken Cup um, <laughs> as as we all know and love it and if you haven't already, why not check out my URC Block 1 recap podcast, which is the most recent episode before this on the channel. So, as always, thanks to my guests for coming on and contributing to a brilliant conversation. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. If you do like what you see or hear, please do subscribe and you find the links from my channels, as well as all the lads' affiliated channels, social medias, whatever, down below. But for now and until next time, thanks for listening. Take it easy. Sports Social Podcast Network.